Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by Royal Retros, the king of throwbacks. Hey, if you're looking for teams and leagues that don't exist anymore, but you'd like to remember them in high quality jersey or uniform format. Hey, some of those teams were legendary. Some of them were disasters, but they all live at Royal Retros. Check them out. RoyalRetros.com. Use that promo code SEATS for 10% off all of your purchases. Check them out now. And now check out this episode. And now three seconds to go in the game. The Oilers on the power play. And with the empty net, it's six on four. Now they're going to move that defenseman up there right on Klima. Now it's a better position so he can't play that puck at all. Smith, they lose the puck loose. Murphy shot, save, it's over. It's over. The North Stars win. The North Stars win. The bench empties. Look at the happy North Stars general manager, Bob Clark. There's a contingent of Stars fans. But it is over, and the miracle season of 1991 has played out another chapter. The final score, the North Stars 3, the Edmonton Oilers 2. The clock strikes 12 for the Edmonton Oilers, and the North Stars are in the Stanley Cup final for the first time since 1981, and only the second time in their history. The season is over for the defending Stanley Cup champion Edmonton Oilers, who finished the game on the power play. And you knew the Oilers, if they went down, were not going to go down without one hellacious scrap. And that is what we had here tonight, all the way to the bitter end. But the North Stars, call it the team of hard work, call it the Cinderella team, call it the team of destiny. I don't care what you call it, but you'll be calling them again next week because the North Stars are going to play the Pittsburgh Penguins or the Boston Bruins in the 1991 Stanley Cup Final. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hey, everybody. It's Tim Hanlon, and it's Good Seats Still Available. How are you doing? Thanks for coming on by. We appreciate you finding us. Lord knows you've got plenty of choices, and uh, we're honored uh, and uh, tickled pink, if you will, uh, for you uh, to spend some time with us this week. We appreciate it. Uh, let's not get excited. Uh, as uh, Doug McLeod and Lou Nanny were uh, on KMSP TV Channel 9, then an independent station in Minneapolis, St. Paul, on uh, May 10th, 1991, that clip that you just heard. Uh, the excitement was certainly palpable then as the Minnesota North Stars uh, from seemingly unheralded depths. Uh, yeah, they made the playoffs, but uh, nobody expected them to get at the precipice of winning the Stanley Cup that season, but that's where they were uh, as they uh, defeated the defending champion Edmonton Oilers uh, in Edmonton, if you can believe it. Uh, that game that night, or that after, actually afternoon, I think it was, uh, three to two. And uh, they won that series, uh, I think it was four games to one. And uh, they were getting ready then to meet the Pittsburgh Penguins in the most unlikely of Stanley Cup finals in 1991. The story. Of that season, the 1990-91 season of the then Minnesota North Stars, you know where they are now, they're in, in Dallas as the Stars, uh, is the topic of our conversation this week with uh, this week's guest, 
Kevin Allensbacher. We're going to be talking about his brand new book that comes out. Well, we're dropping this episode on the 19th of February. It uh, comes out tomorrow, the next day, the 20th. Uh, so uh, if you're listening to it as in real time, uh, it's available tomorrow. So go order it now. GoodSeatStillAvailable.com. Find the link. And uh, Amazon uh, will be there for you to uh, to purchase it. Or if you're listening to it after the 19th, it is available as we speak. Again, it's called Mirage of Destiny, the story of the 1990-91 Minnesota North Stars. Now, we've had a couple of conversations about the North Stars. Uh, one of the more memorable forgotten teams in the NHL. Yes, they have a direct link uh, to the Dallas Stars, where all their, if you will, their history and and lineage sort of goes to. But as we've talked about in previous episodes with uh, various folks, including Howard Baldwin, a, a guy who makes a an appearance in this story, uh, the uh, diaspora, if you will, of the history, the links, uh, not only go to the Stars in Dallas of today, but frankly, also to the San Jose Sharks of today. And we'll get into a little bit of that conversation because the beginnings of the North Stars looking for another home were certainly very well entrenched in this 1991 season. But also the Minnesota Wild, which exists today, the sort of replacement franchise, if you could call it that, uh, after the North Stars left. And and how can you not have a professional hockey franchise at the top level in the state of Minnesota, uh, given just how much hockey is such part of the culture there? Um and in many respects, a lot of people, Kevin included, uh, and maybe yours truly too, uh, would suggest that a lot of the uh, psychic history, I guess, of what the North Stars brought to to Minnesota in their NHL years uh, could be uh, conceived as being housed, if you will, and uh, and furthered uh, by the Minnesota Wild franchise. But, uh, you know, debatable, and it's uh, some of the things we like to talk about here on this show. And uh, the conversation with Kevin is uh, is, is is a fascinating uh, component of all of that. So that is the um, the focus of this week's uh, discussion. We get into sharks, we get into stars, we get into wild, but we talk about more specifically the 1990 slash 91 Minnesota North Stars NHL hockey season, uh, one that uh, they squeaked into the playoffs and then took over and literally came this close to actually winning it all against all the odds. Our conversation with Kevin Allensbach, here it is. Let's not waste any more time. We had this conversation a couple of weeks back. Please, as always, enjoy. For our background, for our audience's background, why don't you give a, I guess, a little bit of a background on you um, sure. and uh, professionally, personally, and all that stuff. And then if you can easily skate into how this the Minnesota North Stars generally, but this particular season specifically, uh, has become such a passion project for you. Right, right. Well, you know, I, I'm I'm from Minnesota originally. Grew up in Central Minnesota near Brainerd, um, and I went to school at the University of Minnesota. I, you know, I was a, a sports fan growing up, uh, involved in a lot of sports, loved to play, but kind of realized early on that I wasn't going to make the big bucks and make it to the major leagues or anything like that someday. So, you know, what I tried to do then is, okay, what's the next best way that I can be around sports? And, you know, what's the best way that I can make a living doing something that to me didn't seem like that much work? 
And, you know, I had an ability to write, uh, you know, I identified that in high school and I was even working for the, uh, the Brainerd Daily Dispatch while I was in, in still in high school, uh, covering sports and, and doing things like that. And so that opened the idea to me that I could become a sports writer someday. And I went to school at the University of Minnesota with that in mind. Well, while I was there, actually, it was my senior year. Um, I was walking, you know, probably on my way to the Minnesota Daily, which was the student paper, one of the better student papers in the country um, that uh, you know we had on campus there that, that I was working for. And in the basement of Murphy Hall, where the journalism school was, they had a billboard that had, um, what would you call it, uh, internship opportunities. And I passed by and I saw this one that said intern, PR intern with the Minnesota North Stars. And I, like I said, I was pretty sure that I wanted to be a sports writer, but I couldn't pass up the idea that I could be on the inside of a major league you know, sports organization and see what that was like. And so that happened to be this 90-91 season, and so that's kind of why we're here. Oh, interesting. So the fact that uh, uh, that so that's timely based on on your, your collegiate experience. So that's OK. So l- let's then use this sort of as as a um, as a midpoint, because. We've had a number of different conversations about uh, the former North Stars franchise with a lot of different people, including um, Howard Baldwin, obviously uh, an interesting figure in sort of the history of this. But maybe to give our audience who may not be familiar with sort of the story of this team, um, maybe you can kind of set the stage for what you were walking into uh, that season, both specifically in terms of like where they were coming off of a not so great season the season before, but frankly, where this franchise kind of was in right. in the landscape, because there was already some shakiness around this franchise prior to this season, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I I would imagine a lot of people who follow hockey. I mean, Minnesota is the state out of the fifty that produces the most youth hockey players, the most college hockey players, high school. And on into the pros, and and you know produces really the most NHL talent as well. So you've got this uh, sort of state of hockey. Uh, I think that's kind of the the uh, title that has been sort of self proclaimed here. Uh, Minnesota got an NHL franchise with the first uh, NHL expansion back in '67. It was one of the expansion six. And for the first few years, you know, tremendous response from the fans. I mean, it was a big deal. You know, people were going to to games in in fine evening dress and and selling out Met Center and stuff like that. Um, by the mid seventies, however, uh, you know, they there was a, a World Hockey Association franchise that came into St. Paul, so they had that competition. And the, the, North uh, the, lo- the long lost fighting saints of Minneapolis, exactly. but that was exactly. in St. Paul. That was in St. Paul, right? Which, which maybe you want to also orient our audience for those who are not familiar with the geography, right? The, uh, neither of these clubs were in downtown Minneapolis. Right. Uh, you had Minneapolis and St. Paul, the twin cities, you know, where, you know, obviously the, the Minnesota twins came in and the Minnesota Vikings representing the state. Uh, it, they were all playing out in, in Bloomington, which is basically a far South, suburb of, of Minneapolis and St. Paul, sort of equidistant between the two cities, because there was a real big rivalry between Minneapolis and St. Paul. And one of the reasons why the, the teams did settle in Bloomington initially was because that was one way to keep both sides happy. You didn't want to make one side of town feel like, you know, they didn't want to come there because the other side won. You know what I mean? So 
Yeah, um, make it make it e- equally inconvenient for both of them to get there. That's uh, there's there's yeah. A- <laughs> I mean, you know, Bloomington is you know it's it's, it's not right downtown. Um, that was certainly on a growth part of the Twin Cities at that time. Um, it's probably 15 or 20 miles, I suppose, equidistant from both, you know, real urban core downtowns. But there was a lot of, you know, suburban type, uh, you know, uh, citizenry down there that that were, you know, providing a populace for these games. Um, but anyway, the, the the team by the mid 70s, it started to struggle. And, you know, it got to one point where, uh, you know, they they. Uh, we're thinking, Jesus, this franchise is going to make it. You know, what are we going to do? They wound up combining them with the uh, the Cleveland Barons at one point. Um, and, and you know, the, the, the North Stars benefited from that. They were able to make a bit of a surprising run to the Stanley Cup Finals in 1981. But then really throughout most of the 80s, they also had a difficult time. And the fans really did not, you know, respond and support the franchise. And so... Um, at that point, the, the owners of the team were uh, George and Gordon Gund. Um, they had owned the, the Barons before and, and then took over the amalgamated franchise when they got together. And, you know, over a decade or more, they kind of had, you know, burnt their bridges, I guess, maybe with uh, with Minnesota uh, sports fans and with uh, maybe the corporate community, that sort of thing. And uh, so so they were basically trying to get out of Minnesota at that point. There was talk that either they would move, uh, that they would sell the franchise. Um, and so, you know, they were divesting of it at that point. And and you mentioned if you if you talk to uh, Harold Baldwin, I'm sure he would be a, a fantastic one to get his perspective on this. It's also interesting, too. I mean, you mentioned the. Um you know, the 70s, right, uh, in particular, right? So uh, you, one just quick scan of the of the, uh, the record those seasons, um, you know, I, never a winning record uh, and often out of the playoffs. And that's actually saying something because back then, and even in the 80s, aside from that break right. that you just mentioned, right, um, it actually wasn't a tough ask to get into the playoffs. I mean, I, even in this season that we're going to be talking about in a few minutes, right. 1991, uh, there were – I think only five franchises that did not make the playoffs that season because there were 16 plus five, only 21 franchises right. in the league at that point. Right. So you really yep. had to go out of your way not to make the playoffs and how many made it with a losing record. So uh, it does speak some, some, some certain level of futility, I guess, before I let you run on this though, um, how much do you, would you say that the fighting saints were or weren't a problem for this franchise in terms of competition and, and whatnot in the market? Well, they were definitely a problem in the 70s, but, you know, by 1977, I believe it was the fall of 1977, the Fighting Saints went toes up, too. So, you know, they, the North Stars don't have that as an excuse through the 80s as a reason why the fans weren't showing up. Um, you know, there's there's been a lot of talks throughout history. I mean, the, the University of Minnesota has a tremendously strong college hockey program, one of the best in the country, uh, and, you know, that that maybe you know, they were drawing some fans away, you know, with their success and sort of that tradition in Minnesota. You have high school teams playing every Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night throughout the winter. And there's legions of fans that follow them. And so there's there's basically a lot of opportunities. There's a lot of different places you can go and get your hockey fixed. And it might be a lot cheaper than what it would be at an NHL game too. And so that might have kind of factored in. But I think largely the reason was is the team just wasn't very good. I mean, they, you know, they made it to the finals in 81. In 82 and 83, 
Um, I think even in 84, they were eliminated, if I remember correctly, in the conference finals against Edmonton. Of course, that was the team that they were running into and not getting past at that point. Um, but then after that, the team was abysmal. I mean, they were, you know, contending for the worst record in the league. And so that's kind of put, you know, what put you on this footing, um, you know, for this sort of twilight zone experience that started in 1990. All right. So so tell me about your particular situation at, at college in the in the late 80s, early 90s, and, and yep. give me a sense of maybe what you thought this franchise would be like for you on the inside as a PR comms kind of guy. Um, well, and, were you excited you know, at the prospect or did you, were you as a fan, I guess, of the sport, were you a little uh, worried that maybe this wasn't sort of like the best franchise to kind of maybe, or, or were you just like, wow, I'm on the inside. I'll take it. There was a lot of that. And I guess I, I should preface this by saying too, despite the fact that I grew up right in the middle of Minnesota, I didn't have that great of a hockey background. You know, I mean, I, I had a younger brother. We lived out in the country and I had a lake right across the street from my house. And so I could go out there and skate somewhat. But I mean, you know, there was just essentially pond hockey. And for me to play anything organized, I lived 18 miles from, you know, the nearest hockey arena. So it wasn't very easy for me to participate in that sort of thing. Long story short, there is, is that, you know, I didn't really develop an interest or quote unquote love for hockey until I was in college and right around this time. Um, and, you know, that said too, you know, the Timberwolves had just come into Minnesota at that time. And so they're playing, you know, their, their first season, they played in the Metrodome and they averaged like 26, 28,000 people, an NBA record for attendance. And then they opened Target Center and they were putting 19,000 people a night in there. That was the shiny thing for everybody at that time. Um, and, you know, the Twins were, you know, a, a, a couple years off of a, a World Series championship. And, of course, the Vikings, for the most part, really owned pro sports in the state of Minnesota. So there's no question that the North Stars were a distant fourth, uh, you know, among those franchises. But for me, it was that opportunity to see what it was like on the other side. I had been a sports writer, you know, covering games, covering events, covering teams. And you see what it's like when you are you know, on the outside trying to get the inside story, I wanted to see what it was like on the inside where you really knew what the story was. All right. So two things there before you get into that. It, number one, um, why weren't the North Stars uh, maybe thinking and entertaining at least the idea of perhaps similarly going into the Metrodome, either as an, as an experience or as a trial or, or for a season and or uh, the new shiny target center that the uh, the T-Wolves were playing in. Well, and, and that is part of the story here. As you get a couple of years down the road from this particular season, there was a big movement to try to either force the, the North Stars to move downtown to the target center, or uh, at that point, the, the eventual owner, Norm Green, was looking at trying to get a different arena deal. He had tried to um, you know, the, the, the Met Center where the team played was operated by something called the Metropolitan Sports Facilities Commission, which was an amalgamation of a bunch of the cities around there, basically sort of a public caretaker for that property. And he had some difficulties. Which, which also included the Met Stadium, of course, too. Right? Correct. Correct. And and then that also transferred to the Metrodome when they built the Metrodome, essentially to, to replace Metropolitan Stadium. That Sports Facilities Commission was also over the Metrodome. Um, so anyway, there, there, there he had some difficulties, 
Um, you know, here's this guy, he comes in and he's a very wealthy man from Calgary, uh, made his money in, in real estate with the shopping malls and things like that. And I think there, you know, he came in and started, you know, talking big and, and trying to tell everybody about, you know, how good it would be for either the state or for, you know, maybe Bloomington or for the sports facilities commission, some of these things that he had in mind. And I think that made a lot of people just sort of reach for their wallet and say, I want to hang on tight. You know what I mean? Also, though, uh, this this also feeds into what I believe around this time was uh, not so quiet a uh, set of rumblings around might this team even just bolt the market altogether. Absolutely, right? absolutely. The the early yeah, maybe a little in... background on that would be helpful too because sure. the, the the seeds of of what ultimately happened in the in the mid nineties was well underway, well growing and and and. Uh, bursting uh, atop the uh, the soil, if you will. Right, right. Um, like I had mentioned, the Guns, the the two brothers that had owned the franchise for a long time, and uh, these are incredibly wealthy men as well. Uh, and they were basically making the case in a, early in 1990 that they had lost like 16 million dollars over, say, three years or something like that. Uh, so they wanted they wanted out either they wanted to take the franchise somewhere else or they wanted to sell it. And then they had designs on getting back into the NHL with an expansion franchise in San Jose, basically the, the franchise that ultimately became the San Jose sharks. And, you know, that was the thing that was really kind of complicating everything at this time. You know, the, the, the North stars were not doing well on the ice. And then there was this, you know, uncertainty about what's going to happen with them. Are they going to be sold at one point? You know, there was even talk about folding them. Um, and, and so Harold Baldwin, the, the, or the guy that you had mentioned that you've talked to before, he came through uh, with uh, another investor and, and they bought the franchise in the spring of 1990. Um, but they needed a little bit more cash, a little bit more backing. And so by June of that year, you had Norm Green come in. And uh, those two were sort of destined to bite butt heads a little bit. And uh, Norm was going to win the battle, I guess, as far as taking over who was going to be calling the shots around Met Center. And and uh, so he you know, basically took over ownership and, and uh, you know, it was his franchise going forward. So how much of this did you know going in? Had you been following this or was it all new to you before you went into the uh, to the oh, office for the first time? It was covered extensively in Twin Cities media, the, the Minneapolis Star Tribune, the St. Paul Pioneer Press. And I was actually working part time at the, at the Pioneer Press uh, by then. So, uh, you know, th these were, you know, in many cases, front page stories about, you know, the future of the North Stars or what was going to happen with the team. Um, so, you know, there was there was a lot of. Uh, you know, sort of background already out there. My internship, you know, when I when I passed by and saw that this was even a possibility, it was probably September of that year. Uh, so by the time you know I had applied and and uh, it was me and an, actually another uh, colleague of mine at the University of Minnesota that got the opportunity to be these two interns. Uh, it was probably November by the time we you know really had our boots on the ground, sort of thing. But uh, you know, it was. There was a lot of things going on around the team that year that really kind of would make you shake your head. Well, so so even before the season starts, I mean, the the, the bizarre sort of scenarios here, and and I, I I'm you know I I know that you know the, the league was obviously trying to keep the owners happy, and and it was yep. clearly not enjoying, you know, the 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 gargantuan success that it has enjoyed, uh, frankly, since right. I mean, right. the idea of just how much bending over backwards there was done. 
right. uh, to ensure the guns were, were were taken care of, so to speak, in this new market, including taking some of these players from yep. this team over there and then allowing the North Stars to actually participate in the dispersal draft uh, or uh, for – uh, or, or uh, to get re- recompensated, I guess, for stuff that that was the, for people that were leaving. I mean, just th- that whole the whole thing just seems torturous and 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 curious just from the very get go. Right. I mean, you know, the, the the guns wanted to get out. They wanted to have a team in San Jose, and they had one problem with that, and that's that Howard Baldwin. Um, he actually had the right to first refusal on an NHL franchise in the San Francisco, San Jose area. So they couldn't go to San Jose without going through him or working a deal with him. Ultimately what they, part of what they did is, is they, they sold him the North stars and picked up his option so that they could have the team in San Jose. But there was a lot more to it than that. Um, the, the guns and, you know, you would think that they must have had a gun to somebody's head or something like that. But I mean, they were able to negotiate a deal where they were going to be able to take basically all of the young prospects within the North Stars system. Um, some of the guys that were at the NHL level already, but for sure, most of them that they had coming up, uh, you know, through the International Hockey League and, and you know, the prospects that were in their system, they were all going to wind up going to San Jose. And after Norm came in and he, you know, got his share of the team, you know, he was uh, making a lot of noise with the league saying that, you know, this wasn't, you know, a a fair deal or an appropriate deal. And so there was about six months of uh, some real back and forth there uh, and a lot of angst, too, between, uh, you know, this this new franchise that was going to be the San Jose Sharks. And the North Stars, um, you know, Bill Goldsworthy, who who was probably one of the most famous players in North Stars history at that time, he was going to be a scout for the Guns and for the new franchise in San Jose. And it got so bad that the North Stars at one point, they were charging him admission. They were not honoring his scout credentials to get in to watch games at Met Center. They were charging him an admission. So that, that just gives you an uh, idea of how bitter the two sides were. Yeah, and, and tremendous background for a, a club that actually has to put together a team to play for the next season. But okay, let, one last thing on this plank, and then we'll sort of maybe sort of segue into the actual season. Um, I, obviously, the uh, the the Baldwin led um, uh, group, obviously with this uh, guy Morris. Uh, is it Beisberg? Belsberg. Sorry, Belsberg. Yep. So he used to uh, run the budget rent a car, I believe. Yeah, and then, but then this, then Norm Green comes into the to the to the fray and essentially takes the majority ownership from from that uh, that ownership kind of scenario. So, yep. I mean, the the way I look at Howard Baldwin, right, and I've said this a couple of times when he's been on the show, right, is he's you know this is a guy who goes back to some of the earliest days of the World Hockey Association yep. and had a dalliance with the World Football League and stuff, and and there was he's almost sort of a, of cut from a certain cloth of the mm-hmm. uh, I would call it the franchise hustler. Uh, realm, exactly. but but, exactly. but yeah, th- 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 these were Gary Davidson and 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 others, right? Who were kind of like you know franchises first, and and we'll get the league up and running next, right? <laughs> Tim, you couldn't have hit the nail on the head better there. I mean, you know, this is a guy who certainly has a lot of wiles. Speaking of Howard Baldwin, and uh, knows his way around uh, professional sports and being a promoter that way. Uh, you know, but he was able to do maybe some things at that time anyway with smoke and mirrors. And I think he saw that in a couple of other, you know, that was part of the deal for him in, in Hartford as well. I don't think he had 
maybe quite as money much money as what it really took to do what he wanted to do and and that certainly was the case with the north stars and why they ultimately had to bring in norm green as an investor and he was an investor to the uh, a significant enough point that he was at some point then able to just say you know what why don't you step aside and i'm going to run the operation yeah, and the late Dennis Murphy, one of our uh, longtime uh, previous guests, obviously was certainly part of that uh, that troika or that small sort of list and stuff. And, and arguably, that's kind of some of the um, uh, the fun and frivolity of, of of our little genre that we've identified sure. for ourselves. But for for right. what it's worth, all right. But but okay. So against that very shaky ownership slash uh, future in market background, right? Um, yep. You step in as an intern and the beginnings of uh, this season uh, are underway. Uh, maybe a little bit of, of uh, insight as to where sort of the, the club stood play-wise sure. uh, the season before, because as we hinted at before, they weren't all that good. And uh, it didn't look like the 1990-91 season was frankly going to be immediately any better. No, uh, matter of fact, uh, I believe was it, the, it, it was either the previous season or the year before that they had a home uh, playoff crowd that only drew like 8,000 fans. Um, you know, and they had barely made the playoffs the previous season, got smoked by Chicago in the first round. And, you know, it's not like there was really a big reason to think that, you know, this franchise was going to be any more capable than, you know, what had been in the previous couple of years. But I think all this off, the off ice turmoil was what really started to, you know, it started to affect what was going on on the ice because you had young players and they don't know, am I going to be here next year? You know, is this a franchise where, you know, I'm going to be able to have a future, um, you know, and, and not necessarily knowing what was going to happen from from one day to the next. And then, you know, kind of an underlying thing here, too, is this is a moment, I would say, from about 1990 until maybe 92, 93, was a real watershed uh, period for the National Hockey League. That's where you started to see the salaries really escalate. In 1990, I think the average salary, I, I'm guessing here off the top of my head, but it was probably somewhere just, say, $150,000 a year which is a pretty decent amount of money, but it's nothing like what players are making today. Um, so, you know, I mean, these guys weren't that far from, removed from the man on the street, I guess is what I was trying to say. Um, and the league had also, the league had also, they had 21 teams at that point. They also had just announced that, that uh, going into that season, that they were going to uh, expand to two more franchises uh, yep. with $50 million expansion fees. Right. So it's clear that some of the money right. was starting to come in now. Right. And that's later one of the things that you saw really kind of forced Norm's hand with the franchise in Minnesota and also with him even just being an owner in the league, because, uh, it, you know, the, the cost, the, the contracts were going up. The cost of doing business was was escalating so great that he just wasn't able to keep up. Um, and then, you know, as luck would have it, too, that season, um, there were two teams in the NHL, uh, the North Stars and the Montreal Canadiens, who entered into an agreement where they were going to go over and they were going to tour and play a bunch of teams in Russia, uh, kind of a, a goodwill tour, I guess is what you might say. And they had only tried it like, I think the year prior. And this is right after the, uh, you know, Berlin wall had come down and, you know, so it was maybe a good experience, but you know, it, it, it started the season a lot earlier, I guess, than what it otherwise would have intact about another, you know, 10, 
games or so onto what was already a, a long and lengthy schedule and and you know kind of interrupted training camp for them a bit too season didn't really kind of start off all that uh tremendously and probably to nobody's uh surprise um but i gotta think that the uh and i don't know this specifically but you might have have a, obviously a clear clearer uh recollection of this certainly as evidence in the book Th- this was also i guess a, a new Pretty much, I want to say, how how remade was the roster, given the stuff we talked about and the dispersal and the expansion stuff, um, versus the season before? Was there enough new blood in there to give people some kind of hope, or was it uh, was it still similar, or what? There were some changes, but not that many. I mean, as far as the San Jose franchise goes, that was going to be determined after this ninety ninety one season. So that was just sort of a specter in the back of people's minds. I guess when you look at the actual roster, they did make a, a couple of significant changes. Um, Bobby Smith, who was one of the better players in franchise history, was with the team in 81 when they went to the Stanley Cup Finals. He had gone to Montreal and played for the Canadians for several years, won a Stanley Cup there, but he was kind of towards the end of his career. And so they were able to work a deal to bring him back. And he kind of gave the team a sort of a veteran presence, you know, somebody, uh, you know, a, a steady hand who had, you know, maybe, you know, been through the wars a little bit. Uh, they also signed Brian Propp, uh, who had had a tremendous, uh, you know, career with the Philadelphia Flyers throughout m- much of the 80s. And uh, he had also played for the Stanley Cup many times. Um, unfortunately for him, didn't win it, but he gave them, you know, somebody who had that level of, of experience. So that was too, you know, um, older, you know, solid veteran players that they did bring in. Uh, they made a few other moves. Ilka Sinisalo was also another player from the Flyers that they brought in. Bobby Clark was the uh, general manager of this team at the time. And, of course, you know, he had his connections not only having played for the Flyers, but been in their front office. So, uh, you know, he was able to bring some talent from, from that franchise here. But, uh, you know, in a grand scheme of things, you know, it was still a fairly young roster. And what most people in the Twin Cities were waiting for is, is when is Mike Madonna going to play like what Mike Madonna was supposed to play like? Because, you know, he was the number one pick in the NHL draft in uh, 1988 and uh, had played his rookie season that 89-90 uh, season. And, you know, he was okay, but um, you know, he was not, you know, it's not like he was stepping into the NHL and having a major impact at that time. And and there was some, some people there wondering, well, did they do the right thing by drafting him? They could have had Trevor Linden who went to Vancouver with the second pick. Um, you know, there, a lot of people were kind of waiting for him to step up and maybe be that, uh, young superstar that could lead them to the next level. So he was already kind of being labeled as an underachiever then? If it's fair to say, yes, I mean, um, you know, there's there probably a lot of pressure on him. I mean, but he um, he certainly had that that uh, reputation, that pedigree that he was supposed to come in and really be an offensive superstar. And, you know, I, I don't know his point total from his rookie year off the top of my head. It wasn't bad. Um, but it wasn't elite. And then when the team in 1990 got off to such a difficult start, you know, I think people were expecting that he was going to have a little bit more of an impact than what he did. And uh, another example, too, of that team sort of underperforming in the, in the fall of 1990, uh, Brian Bellows, who had been he was a number two pick in the NHL draft, I think, back in what was it, 82, 
82 or 81, something like that. Um, you know, longtime all-star, good player. He had scored, I believe it was 50 or 55 goals that previous season in 89-90. And he just got off to an abysmal start in 90-91. Um, and he had just signed a, a contract extension. So that was, you know, there was some people kind of, you know, getting a little antsy about that. And uh, like I said, the team just wasn't, uh, it wasn't clicking. Uh, what would you, how would you describe, uh, the inner workings that you were now part of? Uh, did you travel with the team at all? What, what was the beginning part of the season feeling like? I mean, I, I gotta think this has gotta be interesting because I, you know, it, it's not like you had a couple of years of experience with this team and, and it was, um, kind of common or, or understood that the team's not bad, they're competitive, but they're not necessarily, but it's also a brand new experience for you too. So I guess, what what are your personal experiences of the of the first you know couple sure. of months of the season and frankly what were you also doing like what was your day to day uh i was about as low on the totem pole as you could possibly get around there and still you know have a free pass into the arena i did get a sort of a stipend or something like that i don't think it did much more than pay from my gas to drive back and forth to the med center but uh largely you know my duties were you know I must have stood at a copy machine probably at least a couple hours a day, uh, either running game notes or, or you know, other things, updating stats. Uh, we would write, uh, you know, maybe player features or, or you know, little shorter bits of content uh, stories that might be offered free to uh, suburban newspapers or other newspapers around the state that were interested in running it. Uh, basically just anything so that we could try to get, you know, some some word out, get some coverage out about the team, because, you know, again, compared to the Timberwolves and the Vikings and, and the Twins, even, um, you know, the North Stars were, you know, an afterthought for a lot of people. Um, the other thing you have to bear in mind, too, as far as going on the road or anything like that. We didn't send, I mean, the, the team went on the road, obviously, but even the team when the team went on the road, they were traveling commercial. I mean, that, that's what I don't think a whole lot of fans, you know, in, in today's day and age, or certainly the players today, uh, you know, they get on a charter and, you know, it picks them up and they got, you know, Philemon Nan on board and, you know, they get right to the gate and, and it's pretty easy, you know, as easy as travel can be. Uh, <laughs> the North Stars at that time, they would go into a city, they would play their game that night. And then they would be staying over somewhere in the city that night. So a lot of times these players are trying to get something decent to eat at maybe 11, 1130 at night. And they got to catch a commercial flight at eight o'clock the next morning, either back home or to the next city on their tour. Uh, you know, so you're sitting right there with the crying babies and the grandmas and grandpas going on vacation and all that kind of thing. So it was a different uh, world, really uh, much, much more um shoestring type world i guess is what i would try to describe than what the nhl is today the crowds weren't all that good either was that something that yeah. was chronic and prior or were, were were you part of any effort or, or did you get any sort of schooling as to like uh, maybe some different approaches to how to get fans out to the game i mean i know you weren't in the promotional side of things but i gotta i gotta think that the entire front office was thinking promotions and getting people out and you know, right. somehow right. newly engaged with the franchise, even though on the on the ice it wasn't necessarily any different. Right. Well, like I said, attendance had not been great in some of the recent seasons, but it had never been this bad. 
Uh, opening night, they played against St. Louis. Brett Hall was in the lineup, who at that time was maybe one of the biggest names in the game after Wayne Gretzky. And I believe, I, I'm trying to remember, I think they had maybe 5,400 people in the stands or something like that. And we're talking a 16,000-seat building. So, you know, you got a lot more empty seats than you have filled ones. And, you know, that kind of perpetuated itself through October and through November and through December. And, you know, Norm at this point, I think, is going through several different gyrations. I mean, first of all, you know, he had long had experience with the Calgary Flames. He was a minority owner with the Calgary Flames and one of the people who brought them to Calgary from Atlanta. And in Calgary, you basically open the doors and the people show up. You know, you don't have to do a whole lot of marketing. You don't have to really give people that great of a reason to come to the games. They just did. And in, you know, Bloomington and Minneapolis, St. Paul at this time, that just wasn't going to work. And so he tried a couple of things. You know, it was maybe a bit of a knee-jerk reaction. I mean, he saw what was happening with the Timberwolves at the Target Center. And he's like, okay, you know, they have a, a dance group. You know, they have the, the, the Timberwolves performance team or whatever that would run out onto the floor and they would dance their little number during timeouts or, or what have you. And that seemed to be kind of a big thing in the NBA at that time, like the Laker girls, that sort of thing. And so he came up with this group and it was called the Electric Stars, which is apparently the first dance troupe to ever work, uh, you know, full time in the NHL. And so, you know, the dancers would be dancing in the aisles during stoppages in play. And sometimes between periods, they would bring out a big piece of AstroTurf and they were trying to do their routine in the middle of the rink. And, you know, there are a lot of people at these games who are longtime hockey aficionados and they just weren't buying the NBA sort of shtick, you know? So it's, I don't really know that that did a whole lot for them. And then one of my other favorite uh, sort of promotions or things that he did, he decided to have a lottery, which was basically, he was gonna try to encourage fans to come because if you were there and your seat got drawn, you could win, I think it was the up to $15,000 or something like that. And if people didn't claim a prize, that would roll over to the next game. So you had this sort of ongoing lottery that was called Star Stakes. And it was really kind of surreal because they had a couple of other college kids who I suppose were working with the, uh, the marketing folks or something like that. And they would dress up in a North Stars jersey, and they had a goalie mask on, kind of like uh, Jason from Friday the 13th. And so when they would do these drawings, it would happen either, you know, during intermission or, you know, some longer stoppage in play or something like that. They would, you know, the, the spotlight would be circling and looking all over the arena, you know, and going around, going over all these seats. And then it would settle on a location where these guys were supposed to run up and hand the person an envelope full of all this cash. Well, most of the time it's wound up on an empty seat. <laughs> um, and it was just, you know, just the whole sort of atmosphere. Uh, not only did it not really go over very well for the locals, but all the visiting media would come in and they would write about this. And it was just, I mean, they had a field day, you know, just kind of poking fun at the North Stars and where they were probably through the first half of the season. Well, you mentioned that Russian trip uh, prior. Uh, it, was there, I mean, what did it truly have any kind of a effect on the on the play? Do you think there was a hangover, so to speak, of that, or or you think that the legs were a little bit more tired, perhaps, than a normal uh, beginning to 
uh, an NHL season? You might be able to say that. I actually think my personal opinion is where the, the Russia trip kind of wound up coming back to bite them was at the tail end of the season, at the end of the playoffs. Uh, we're getting ahead of ourselves here a little bit, but this is a franchise that, you know, they wind up going all the way to the Stanley Cup finals. And at that time, combined with Russia and, you know, the exhibition season and, and all the playoffs, I mean, they I believe they had played like 110 games or something like that. And so, you know, I, but my, my opinion is, is that, you know, it kind of, it, you know, it, it it manifested itself later on. Um, in some sense, I think it was good from a team bonding standpoint that these guys got to go over and, you know, they're in Russia, their families went with them or, you know, wives and girlfriends went with them because, you know, going to Russia at that time was still a pretty big deal. There weren't a whole lot of people that were getting that opportunity. So it's kind of like you got a chance to look behind the the Iron Curtain, and you know it was, it was kind of a, a you know a special experience for a lot of the players. Um, so it, it was it was good from a team bonding standpoint. But you know, and I think Bob Gainey said even in the book, he's like, man, if you would have wanted to, you know, put together a training camp that was going to help the team, that wasn't it. So as the season progressed, and and I, I obviously having uh, read the book and and, and looked through it, I, I kind of know the answer a little, well, a little bit. I, where, at what point in the season, based on your personal experiences, as well as maybe objectively uh, in terms of the team's performance and, and what was going on at franchise, franchise ownership and stuff, what would you consider, and maybe there's multiple answers to this, the, the turning point, the, yeah. the, the, the notch, the, the gear shift, if you will, uh, in the season, even before the playoffs, even just making the playoffs for the, for the sure. club? Yeah. And, you know, I don't know if you can point to one particular day. There's there's a couple of answers to that. Statistically, in the middle of January, right before the All-Star break, they had a home game again against Montreal. And, you know, you had a real Montreal connection with this team. I mean, Bob Ganey was the uh, the head coach. Doug Jarvis was one of their assistant coaches. Uh, you know, the Canadians at that point, uh, you know, they were still a very storied franchise. Uh, Patrick Waugh and all that kind of stuff. And this was, like I said, a mid-January game at Met Center, and they drew about 5,000 people, and they got beat 5-1, to one, and it was pretty much an embarrassment for the North Stars all the way around. And that was statistically the low point. Then uh, they were able to – they won their next game before the All-Star break, and then after the All-Star break, they started at least having success at home um, enough to – to get them into the playoffs, which, you know, you mentioned earlier, when you only got to be one of 16 teams out of 21, your odds are actually pretty good to make the playoffs no matter how bad you are. Uh, and, and they were able to do that. Um, from a psychological standpoint, I think the thing that maybe flipped the switch, uh, it wasn't until the end of January. I think it was right at the tail end of January. They went to Toronto for a game at Maple Leaf Gardens. And Toronto was the team that they were trying to put in their rearview mirror. Um, you know, if, if they could finish ahead of Toronto, then they were going to make the playoffs. And the, the Maple Leafs were clearly one of the worst teams in the league at that point. It was kind of them and and Quebec uh, that were sort of in the Eric Lindros uh, sweepstakes to see who was going to wind up finishing with the worst record. And the the Toronto beat them four to nothing uh, at Maple Leaf Gardens. And Norm did not go on the trip, but he watched that game uh you know was on local television in in minnesota and he was so upset by that that he basically he told uh bobby clark the next day he's like 
do whatever you got to do. You know, if there's somebody here who's not working, if you don't feel like you're getting, um, you know, the, the, the effort that you need, then we got to move people. There's nobody who's untouchable. And it was a pretty loud, you know, he really dressed the team down. Uh, I think that was one of the first times that, you know, there really was this, you know, straight from the owner, you guys are not doing it. And I'm extremely upset with you and I'm going to let you know it. And at least at, at that point, I, I remember right after that happened, uh, Detroit came in for a home game at Met Center and the, the North Stars won pretty handily. And so it seemed like at least at that point, then, you know, they were getting the effort and doing some of the things that they needed to do to at least be competitive. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the, the, uh, the season from about that point on, um, not a whole lot of losses, a bunch of ties, a, a lot more wins. Um, they, they did hit a, a rough patch though, in, in March where they had a, uh, I think it was like a four game losing streak or seven out of nine games and stuff near the sort of the, they didn't finish strong as the regular no. season came about. So I, I guess the, the other sort of question is like, if it, it what you just described seems like it was a, uh, somewhat of a, of a turning point. They did seem to kind of do better on the ice uh, and with some of the, the teams that they, they had to win against, but it well, seems like well, they kind of hit a divot there near the end of the regular season. Well, I think what happened is, is, you know, he dressed them down and, you know, there was a lot of sort of external pressure. You know, you guys have to be better. You got to make the playoffs. And so that was kind of the bar. I think that subconsciously got set. Well, you know, once they, I mean, they clinched a playoff spot, then I think it was like on March 17th. And you're right. I I, uh, I don't know off the top of my head what their record was after that, but they did go, you know, south. And, and you know, there was quite a few losses between then and, uh, you know, the end of the regular season. And I think that it was just kind of that. It's like, okay, woo, we got the monkey off our back. We're going to be in the playoffs. So at least, you know, we, we took care of that. Um, I think there was a little bit of a natural letdown there. At the end of the regular season, they were also, you know, resting a, a couple of guys to try to, you know, put them in the best spots so that they could put the best team on the ice once the playoffs rolled around. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, you mentioned this, the 17th and you literally look at the stats and they lost. They they promptly lost four straight games right after that. They won another one in right. against Chicago uh, on the uh, the 30th and then their last game of the season, they lost to the to the Blues away. So um, but there you go. But in uh, not so great form they wind up in the playoffs as the worst of the 16 teams in the nhl stanley cup playoffs that season yeah uh and i mean i don't know how you could have really expected you know anything was going to happen with this and i you know i guess i should share with the listeners too from my personal standpoint you know at, at this time i had been working for you know, six months or so under Norm Green and everybody who worked for him walked around like they were on eggshells, afraid, you know, that he might, you know, fire them for no good reason or, or you know, get out of hand because of some little thing or whatever. Uh, my routine typically was I would get up about seven or eight in the morning and I had class at the University of Minnesota. Maybe in the afternoon, I would drive to Met Center. And then if there wasn't a game that night, I'm going to St. Paul to work on the copy desk in the sports department at the Pioneer Press. So I would get home at about one o'clock in the morning and then I'd get it up and do it all over again. And the only difference is, like I said, whether there was a game or maybe occasionally in the morning, I might go to Met Center instead of going to class or something like that. So, you know, I was getting pretty stretched thin at this point myself. I mean, it was 
it was fun being on the inside, uh, but, you know, still nobody thought – you know, we just thought, okay, well, they're going to make the playoffs and they're going to play Chicago right away and that will be the end of it. And, you know, I was even thinking myself, you know, okay, I know I don't want to be in PR. I want to work – you know, I want to be a sports writer. I want to be telling you the truth about what's really going on. I don't want to try to be spinning it some way that it's not. You know what I mean? So – um, you know, I, I was ready for, for my duties to be done at that point. I was kind of looking forward to the season to be over, to be honest with you. All right, what's this? Royal Retros. All right, longtime fans of this show may remember a little site that we used to promote the heck out of called 503 Sports. Well, not only are they still around, they are now known as Royal Retros. RoyalRetros.com, the king of throwbacks. And like the name implies, the highest quality jerseys and hats and apparel and all kinds of stuff related to various teams and leagues and situations that we love to obsess about here on this show. And I'm talking about getting jerseys with your name and number on the back of them, customized to your liking for the WHA or, or old NHL hockey teams that may not exist anymore. Uh, perhaps it's a federal league team from way back or a Negro league team. Maybe you're just enamored with the various football leagues of the past, like the Arena League or the All-American Football Conference or the original UFL, United Football League. Yes, you can get all of those teams uh, in all kinds of colors, away jerseys, home jerseys. You want to put your name on them. You want to make sure you got the official patch on the side. All of those things and more at RoyalRetros.com. And I'm not kidding, friends. You go there. You want to find that Cleveland Barons jersey to wear and show. Hey, you're maybe a Colorado Avalanche uh, fan and you want to represent the Quebec Nordiques from where they came. Uh, in the arena to show your heritage and your love and knowledge of the history of that franchise, you can do that and more. And I'm talking across football and basketball and baseball and hockey and you name it, all kinds of great stuff for you to find and buy and purchase and wear proudly from Royal Retros. That's RoyalRetros.com. And of course, we have a promo code for you. We want to save you money from all these great things. Uh, and here's that code. It's SEATS, S-E-A-T-S, promo code SEATS for all of your purchases at RoyalRetros.com. Check them out. You'll be glad you did. We love them. And our friend Destin Alameda there out in Portland, Oregon, we appreciate his and their sponsorship of this show. And now back to our conversation. So let's talk about this then now miracle run because let's and let's start with the Blackhawks. They were the best team that year, not by a whole lot. Uh, I think the, the, they were one point better than the Blues in their own division. And, and right. but, but they were ostensibly the number one seeded team in, in these playoffs. Um, right. It kind of looked like it was just going to be four and out, right? Right. Well, I, I don't know if it was going to be four and out, but. I mean, but at least on paper, didn't it didn't look like it was going to be all that competitive, right? Especially right. considering that the North Stars and Blackhawks were familiar with each other and right. they were almost 40 points difference in terms of yeah. how they finished the regular season. Yes. There was two things that happened there. First of all, uh, Brian Propp scored an overtime game winner in game one. So the North Stars stole home ice advantage right away in that series, got a little bit of confidence or a little bit of faith that, you know what, hey, maybe something can happen here. 
so that that gave them uh, you know a little bit of hope. And then the other thing, Chicago, you know, they, they were coached by Mike Keenan, and the, the, that franchise historically, but especially then, had a real reputation for being very physical, be, being very in your face, and pushing you know the limits of what was legal. And the North Stars did a tremendous job in that series of basically turning the other cheek. Uh, Bob Ganey knew that that was going to be something that they had to do going in. They basically had to engage with the Blackhawks. Whenever there was a stoppage or something like that, you wanted to have players right either in Ed Belfour's face or, or you know, right there when the whistle blew. And not that they were going to do anything, but you were right there so that Chicago inevitably was going to be punching guys or shoving or, or, you know, giving you a face wash or something like that. And that led to penalties. And then the North Stars in, in the playoffs that year, at least for the first three rounds, their power play was lethal. I mean, they were scoring basically a goal every three opportunities. So how how then does the best team in the league I mean, falter? I mean, were, were the Blackhawks underperforming too? Or was it just maybe it was kind of familiarity breeds contempt and you know, given the fact that, you know, the maybe it was sort of a, a belief uh, amongst the Blackhawk players that they kind of knew what they were going to get here and they maybe kind of just let their guard down a little bit. Or do you think it was the North Stars stepping up to your point? Well, that really, I mean, Chicago had the upper hand in that series. They came back and won game two and then they, they won game three at Met Center, although it was a bit of a controversial goal. Uh, the North Stars kind of felt like uh, there was a, a collision at the crease that that basically created the opportunity for the game-winning goal to get scored in that one. Um, and I know Bobby Smith and a few of the other players have said that if there's a turning point in the playoffs that year, they really felt like it was the day after game three. They went to Met Center for practice, and they showed up expecting that, you know, Bob – because they had lost, I think it was like six to five in game three. So they gave up a lot of goals, did not play probably, you know, didn't play the type of game that they would have liked to have played. And so they were expecting that they were going to get ripped. They they really figured he was going to lay into them. And he told them, you know, hey, despite that, you know, we had by far the better majority of the players on the ice. Um, You know, he was pleased with the way that the team was going you know, tried to, you know, offer encouragement that, you know, they they could still do this if they would play their game. And, you know, they did win game four to even the series. And then when they went back to Chicago, here's where maybe the Blackhawks laid an egg or, uh, you know, Mike Keenan was not a very easy guy to play for. And so, you know, I think once things did kind of start turning south for them, it wasn't a very easy thing for them to write, write the ship. Uh, the North Stars beat him. I think it was six to nothing in that uh, in game five. Uh, so they come back to Met Center and and now it's game six and Chicago's got to win to stay alive. And that was that was the night. The North Stars, they win three to one. And uh, sort of that was the shot heard around the world. I mean, that was the biggest playoff upset in I don't know what it was like 40 years or something like that. Um, and and so, you know, that that kind of put the whole thing on the map, and all of a sudden, hey, guess what? You got another playoff series to play against St. Louis. Tell me about the uh, what you remember from the reaction of the media and uh, the fans and that, that kind of stuff. What is was it? What is it? A jolt uh, to the fan base? What, do, were people newly uh, intrigued or interested? Uh, were they similarly shocked, or was it? Did, did it not make a reverberation at all? Well, it was building, but even those games against Chicago were not selling out. 
You know, I mean, the first couple of uh, home playoff games against Chicago didn't sell out. They did wind up, I believe game six was a sellout. And then after that, throughout the playoffs, um, you know, they did, uh, if not fill the building, come pretty close to doing so. Um, but, I, you know, I think even at that point, figure a lot of people are thinking like, well, OK, you know, this is a fluke. I mean, it can happen in sports. It's a big upset, you know, good for the North Stars. But I, nobody expected, you know, they figured, OK, they just sort of delayed the executioner. I mean, St. Louis is going to knock them out. And, yeah. So, uh, so it's important to remember, too, that St. Louis was the team that finished one point behind the Blackhawks in the Norris division of the Campbell Conference that season. Exactly. Arguably the second best team of the of the National Hockey League that season. So congratulations. You beat the Blackhawks in, in stunning fashion. Now you get the St. Louis Blues, also, right. which is bizarre. And again, this is sort of NHL circa this era, right? Uh, right. The fact that they're playing yet another interdivision rival in the playoffs, again, familiarity breeds contempt, I guess. But here we are again playing the second best team in the league and also right. just happens to be a foe in the division. Well, and, you know, fans have their opinion. I personally love that concept where you got to come out of your division because I'm telling you, those playoff games when it was against Chicago, against St. Louis, and, and I'm not even necessarily talking that particular season, but even other seasons. Uh, those divisional playoff games were a, they were a war, and you would see that in a lot of other cases around the league too. Just from what you said, I mean, because the teams are very familiar, you know, everything is on the line. Because if you lose, you're done. And uh, you know, so to me, that made those games really entertaining. Um, and then the other thing about St. Louis at that point, you know, Brett Hall, I believe, scored 85 goals that year. Um, so, you know, like I said, Wayne Gretzky is still the guy and, and, you know, Mario Lemieux was at that point, a really exceptional player who, you know, hadn't really had any, you know, postseason success, uh, you know, but Brett Hall was right there with him. And, you know, there was sort of the expectation if there was one that, you know, it was going to be pretty tough to stop him from scoring goals. How does the St. Louis, uh, thing happen? Clearly those games were a lot tighter, it seems based on the score lines. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, game one, again, you know, uh, true to form, the North Stars went to St. Louis and they won two to one, I believe was the final in that one. And they lost game two. And that was something that you kind of saw repeated itself throughout the postseason. And they, you can't, uh, you know, overestimate, you know, the importance of winning game one, especially when you're the underdog. It's like all of a sudden, you know, you feel like, hey, there's life and you only got to win three more games and there's the potential for, you know, at least three of those, you know, at, at that point, you, if you won your home games, you'd win the series, you know. So, I mean, it really kind of gave you a boost that way. Um, you know, I think when I look at St. Louis, the one sort of Achilles heel they had that year, Curtis Joseph was hurt. And so, you know, Vincent Riendo was their goalie. They had Pat Jablonski, but, you know, they didn't really have what you would call a difference maker in net. And, and they certainly got exposed that way a, a few games in the series where, you know, at one point, the North Stars put up eight on. So uh, but, you know, it, it was, uh, you know, a, a tightly played series. And, and the key to that one, um, the North Stars had a couple of players, uh, Gaetan Duchesne and uh, Stu Gavin, who were a couple of veteran, really defensive type players. And Bob Ganey basically put a shadow on Brett Hull, one of those guys and sometimes both of them. Uh, were all over him, no matter where he was on the ice. As soon as he jumped off the bench, they came off from the North Stars bench. And 
he got increasingly frustrated as that series went along because he wasn't not only was he not getting goals, but he wasn't even getting shots. And the Blues were really struggling on the power play, which obviously that's where Brett, you know, had a lot of his, you know, goals, a lot of his offense came from. And so you could just see it as the as the series went along. He he was getting so frustrated to the point where, you know, eventually, I think by like games, you know, four and five, he was barely talking to the media uh, because he was so upset at the way things were going. Was there a turning point in this series as well, or was it just uh, because it seems like that? Uh, it, when do you think destiny kind of sort of plays in? It's obviously part of your title of your book, but yeah. clearly there's a point in this series that, you know, it 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 not only is confidence, but a feeling that you know, uh, and obviously by winning the series, certainly that adds to it. But it feels like there's probably something in this series that kind of said, you know, what we can actually really do this. Yeah, at, you know, I don't think that it arrived maybe at least until the tail end of this series. I, I believe in game six, uh, the North Stars won at home, clinched their second uh, playoff series. And the Stars that night, I think Brian Glenn, if I remember correctly, had either a goal or two. He was a, you know, fourth or fifth defenseman, basically. Uh, Chris Dahlquist is another guy who I, I think he had maybe the game winning goal that night, if, if memory serves. And uh, again, these are, you know, pluggers and grinders who are, you know, sort of at the, at the bottom of the roster and, you know, for them to come through in a situation like that, I think it was at that point that you, you started to feel like, you know what, there's something going on here. And, you know, John Casey too, you can't say too much about the way that he played in the playoffs. I mean, when he was on, he was just, he was really lights out and it kind of gave them the belief. I mean, there was a lot of times when they would give up chances, but, you know, he was able to, to be there to, to shut the door. And I, you know, I think the entire state of Minnesota and, you know, to a certain extent, maybe hockey fans, wherever you were, whether it was in Canada or across the United States or wherever, I think that was when they kind of started to wake up to this a little bit too, especially, like I said, here in Minnesota, because by the end of the St. Louis series, it was almost like a drug. I mean, the the experience, the the party that was going on at Met Center, the tailgating, and and just you know people wanting to be a part of that atmosphere. Um, you know, and it, it's springtime. You got some days out there where it's 60, 70 degrees and sunny at that point. Um, you know, it was just really the place to be. And you know, the other thing too. I mean, there's so many little footnotes that kind of work into the story, which is maybe one reason why the book is so damn big. Uh, <laughs> it's but, great though all all there's no footnote left unturned which is great well and actually i want to get your opinion on that too because you're one of the first people who have read it who were not a part of the you know the, the production of it so i wanted to hear from you if you thought it was too big or too long or what have you um but i i guess like i said there's there's so many little footnotes here and one of the ones that also factors into the way the people in this state looked at that team you could not watch the home games on television because uh, at least if you lived in the twin cities metro area because they had the the north stars at that point had a deal with midwest sports channel which was not on it, it was not basically not available to probably 80 percent of the cable market so if you lived in way outstate minnesota you could get the games if you lived in the metro area the only way you could get the games was on pay-per-view and you know, I believe it costs ten dollars a game, up to twelve dollars, I think, for the the conference finals and for the finals. And you know, a lot of people started to pay that. I mean, they, you know, that's evidence of how 
you know, this got to be such a passion is, is that, you know, people were buying the pay-per-view. I mean, it was almost like, like what you would see for a big boxing event. I mean, that's what these games were like when they were at home. Well, it's also, it's also important to remember too, that aside from the overtime losing, um, sorry, it wasn't overtime. It was a five, six, a six, five loss. The first home playoff game, the uh, uh, through the Hawks, the rest of the Hawks series, the entirety of the right. Blue series, and the entirety of the Oilers series, all the home games were wins. Right. So, right. And ironically, I mean, it, truly, you you said it before. It was it was kind of the place to be because this playoff magic was happening literally at home. Right. And uh, there's another note buried in there somewhere. I know that I figured out. I I believe. Uh, in the it was either in the games that they won or in the games that they played at home, you know, after that first loss against Chicago, I think they only trailed for like 18 minutes, uh, you know, until deep in the finals against Pittsburgh. So, you know, that kind of shows you too, you know, they they kind of got their mojo going in the right direction and they didn't really have to, you know, the, I mean, I, I hesitate to say it this way, but I mean, they didn't really have to overcome tremendous adversity to get some of those wins. You know, I mean, they were able to either get the lead and stay in the lead or, or, you know, at least make sure that the game didn't get away from them or have to dig themselves out of a hole until the finals. And, you know, then we saw what happened. So Edmonton itself as the next uh, foe uh, is an interesting story in, in this uh, next round because uh, they were the defending Stanley Cup champs, but they uh, themselves had a bit of a um, uh, an overcoming of an expectation, right? Because they had knocked out the LA Kings who had now had, of course, the uh, the great Wayne Gretzky now uh, on board mm-hmm. and um, okay. were basically the first in that uh, division or that conference. Uh, and knock them off. So I think a lot of people were maybe not surprised, but hey, the Oilers had at least something left in the gas tank, frankly, to. Um, so, you know, I, here we go. We've got uh, the Blackhawks, the best team uh, statistically in the in the league, knocked off the Blues, the second best team in the league and a similar conference, excuse me, uh, division foe right. uh, also knocked off. And now the Oilers, who themselves had knocked off uh, the beast of the West, I guess, or the expected beast of the West, L.A., um, Seemingly well, formidable co- uh, competition as well, but again, um, nothing that could compete against the Magic or what had this lightning in a bottle, I guess. And you know, you talk about the Edmonton series. I mean, like you say, they're the defending Stanley Cup champions. They didn't have Wayne Gretzky anymore, but they still had Mark Messier and they had Paul Coffey. And they, well, not Coffey, he was gone to Pittsburgh by then, but you know, they still had some of these tremendous names. Uh, you know, from their cup run, uh, you know, Andy Moog in, in, in goal and, and Grant Fear was was in goal. I mean, you know, they still had, you know, some real talent from those teams. They had gotten off to a terrible start during the regular season. Um, but, you know, they were also a team that kind of turned it on in the second half. And uh, the, the interesting stat that I thought going into Edmonton and again, Look at it from my standpoint. I mean, I'm ready for the season to be done. You know, I, there's no way that they're going to go all the way to the Stanley Cup Finals. Still, so, still you, you know, doubt it. You're on the inside and you're still waiting to get out, well, of, out of town. You got to huh? understand. I, I mean, there was some real intimidation working for Norm Green. I mean, here I am. I'm a college kid at about the, you know, the, the bottom of the food chain. And I remember one day. Uh, you know, one time, one of my jobs, I, I would write um, sort of these, um, you know, how-to features with the the players. You know, they, you know, I'd talk to them about a specific hockey skill or how to 
you know, how to do something from a hockey player standpoint. And, and I would write up a little story and those would go in maybe the suburban papers or something like that, or let's play hockey or whatever. And I remember I got a really nice note from Norm. He scribbled his signature across the front and said, this is great, you know, fantastic. And so, you know, my chest puffed out a little bit that day. But excuse me, then I remember another day and it was not game day. This was an off day. And so I go out to Med Center and I'm, you know, working in my little cubicle or whatever, which was a couple of offices removed from where his was. I don't even know how he would have ever really seen me that day. Um, But, you know, I was wearing like khakis and a sweater or something like that. You know, it's not like I was dressed like a hobo. And word came down through my boss that, you know, he wanted me to go home and put a tie on. So I had to go and get back in my car and drive, you know, 20 minutes back to, you know, my place where I was living at the U and, you know, get dressed up again and head back out there. And so, uh, and, and I did obviously, you know, I uh, do whatever I was supposed to do, but it was just this sort of, uh, you know, environment of upheaval that was not really for me. I mean, I, I, I guess, like I said, I, I want to be a part of, you know, telling the truth to the people. I want to be the source for all the things that they want to know. I don't want to be the barrier that's in the way for some of the things that they want to know that we don't want to tell them. You know what I mean? So, uh, you know, anyway, at that point, you know, I'm thinking, okay, well, they got lucky against Chicago and they knocked off St. Louis. Here we are against Edmonton. They hadn't won at Northlands Coliseum in the previous 10 years. I mean, think about that. They haven't won at that building in 10 years. So why would you think that you're going to go up there and be able to win this series? Well, of course, they stayed true to form. They won game one. And Edmonton really kind of tried to play tough with them, too. And it worked about as well for them as it did for Chicago. And the North Stars got through that series in, in five games. It was easier than the other two. Were you traveling for any of these uh, away games, including that one, that series? Um, I believe if I remember correctly, I think in the, in the conference finals, my boss got to go and then she went on the trip for the, the Stanley cup finals. But, you know, I basically, my role was, you know, media liaison whenever games were at Met center to be there on off days, you know, it's kind of hard for people to imagine too. I mean, this is pre-internet there's, you know, I mean, the fax machine was probably a you know a, a fantastic tool back then. So your reporters from all over the country, if they're trying to arrange an interview with somebody, it might be by telephone or uh, you know as the playoffs kind of deepened, you had all these media in town, um, and so they would then descend on practice. You know, we needed people to you know kind of be the you know the the go between, I guess, from the players to the media. Uh, and like I said, there was even a lot of things, even on a, a game day or a non-game day when the team was on the road somewhere, there still might be, you know, statistics or a stats package or, or game notes or something like that, that we would have to put together back at Met Center and either fax or, you know, um, somehow transmit to, you know, to wherever the team was at. So, you know, that was, you know, largely my role at that point. I, you know, I didn't get to go, uh, you know, on the road really with the, the team at all that season. Um, but it was tremendous being a part of it at Met Center. I tell you, I mean, there was a, there, there's a loading ramp off the, the west end of that building where the players would exit to go to their cars. 
And for sure by the St. Louis series and especially by the Edmonton series, there was so many people who were that 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 loading ramp was like a mosh pit after games. And I can remember going out and of course at this time I'm 20, 21 years old myself and probably, you know, didn't look that different from some of the players. And uh, you know, you're getting mobbed and asked for autographs, and I'm trying to make my way through the crowd and say, you don't want my autograph, but uh, you know, it was just interesting to be a part of. I think it's also interesting, too, that uh, as the series sort of played out, um, you have to remember that Minnesota was always the uh, lesser of the teams ranking wise. Right. So the pattern, right, of the first two games were always away in all these series. And what, you know, what uh, inevitably they were doing was they were splitting those first two away games. Right. Which gave them a bit of an advantage, if you will, as you look at the next two games, which were at home and consistently through this series through uh Edmonton and even uh until maybe the first game of of the the first home games of the the Stanley Cup uh th- these were back to back home wins and a similar case with the Oilers right by that time uh, they were up 3 games to 1 going to Edmonton for their final game which they then won as well and so here it was they were six game series six game series and now a five game series beating Edmonton right. the form the defending Stanley Cup champion at that point, you got to sit back and go, there has to be something in the stars here, literally and yes. figuratively, right? That, yes. and, and I love you. you and one, have, of my, one of my favorite parts in the book is is sort of the description of the scene and, and kind of how everybody was feeling after that last game in Edmonton because they stayed the night and came back the next day. At that point, they did uh, have a charter flight they were going back and forth on. Uh, and just sort of the you know, the, the sense of awe, the sense of wonder at what they were doing. And, uh, you know, when that flight got back to uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul International Airport, it was probably, I want to say like two or three o'clock, the, you know, the following afternoon. And there was several thousand North Star fans there to, to meet them at the airport. Um, you know, again, it was kind of a rock star sort of scene. And, and, you know, that was the point at which, you know, it, it's like everybody really thought okay is this cinderella story really gonna happen and and you had seen it succeed three times already so why would you believe maybe that it couldn't and and they certainly had the belief at that point too i i love in um uh in chapter 13 of your book you have a a picture of the um uh, late great national uh was uh, a, a frank deford and team's uh, attempt at a national sports uh, daily, I think, arguably a bit too highbrow for most sports fans in the yeah. era of USA Today at the time. But on there is that cover uh, from what was it? I guess it was May 14th of 91, just as the uh, in the, the finals. Uh, and you got a picture there of um, I, who was the goalie you got pictured there? I John can't. Tell. Yep, that was John Casey. John Casey. Yeah. And, and who are these guys is the is the headline on that. And um, but I guess I got to think for the NHL at the time, having an underdog story like this uh, probably didn't hurt for the general slash, slash casual fan, right? Because NHL has always had that sort of issue with, you know, it's very passionate at the local level. But, you know, when it yeah. comes to the finals, it, it, it needs a real story or two to kind of get to the casual fan. Well, and I think actually the NHL was probably pleased that it was going to wind up being two American teams because really for most of the 80s, you know, you had Edmonton or you had Montreal or you had Calgary, who was at least one of the teams represented in the finals. And, 
you know, so for, for you know, there, there was a real movement in the NHL at that point to try to increase their uh, American footprint, uh, you know, with Gretzky going to Los Angeles and, and you know, the idea that they were going to go into San Jose. And, and you certainly saw it play out later with the shift of some franchises to the South. I mean, they wanted a, a national television contract in the United States. And, and so, you know, it, it certainly didn't hurt that you had a couple of uh, American teams in the finals. And, and really, I mean, Pittsburgh was sort of a, you know, kind of an underdog sort of story as well. So uh, it was a, a similar sort of thing. Well, well, the magic seemed like it was still uh, uh, intact, right? Because Minnesota wins the first game away in Pittsburgh, drops the second one, but very similar to the same uh, uh, format uh, of previous series. Um, The first home game against Pittsburgh was a 3-1 win, and that certainly had to make things. Now you're up 2-1, although they dropped that second one, uh, that second game. So now it's 2-2. Still, uh, you're 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 in a in an, an environment where this still seems within the realm of possibility. Now it's a best of essentially a best of uh, uh, well, well, best of three is it at that point? So two sure. wins, two losses. Okay, so essentially you've got you're you're down down to the best of three. Um, right. But I guess this is where sort of all hope sort of sort of fades away because going to Pittsburgh didn't help, and then the return home game where they could have tied it up again arguably at least on the score line was just disastrous and 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 yeah. frankly has an asterisk for history now because i think it was the worst right well you you describe it well and you're you're right on here tim i mean there's so many little things through those first few games that kind of foreshadow what happened i mean yes the north stars won game one in pittsburgh uh six to five uh it followed this trend but uh, they didn't play their game very well. They wound up, uh, you know, they took a lot of penalties. Um, you know, it, it wasn't sort of the typical, you know, kind of performance that they had had in the first few rounds. And then in game two, uh, they lost four to one. And that was a night Mario Lemieux scored a highlight goal that you still see today. If, if anybody watches uh, Hockey Night in Canada or uh, you know, a lot of times the highlight uh, reels that the NHL puts together, there's a goal on there that he scores where it's basically a breakaway on him and, and John Casey, and and they all wind up in the net with the puck. Uh, and and I think that kind of, you know, that was a firsthand guy. Believe me, all the North Stars knew how good Mario Lemieux was, but that was sort of the exclamation point at that point of what he was capable of. And so then you come back for game three, and game three at Met Center, I've never seen this before, and I don't know if it's ever happened since, where one of the biggest moments of that night, and it had to do with my job, I, you know, I had to go and make copies of the starting lineup, you know, and you're handing out game notes and you're handing out copies of the starting lineup throughout the press box. And it's probably, you know, 15, 20 minutes before faceoff, and I'm handing out the starting lineups, and there's a line through where it said 66, Mario Lemieux. He's scratched. Because he went out for warm-ups that night, and he could tell he was having some back spasms, and he knew it wasn't a good thing. He went back up the stairs to the dressing room and knew it wasn't going to go, so he basically had to have somebody help him get his skates off, and and he didn't play in Game 3. And the North Stars did prevail, but even even then, that night, you know, they – it took until, I believe, midway through the second period for anybody to score – and the North Stars scored a couple of goals fairly close together, but then Pittsburgh got another one to kind of, you know, take a little bit of that air out of the balloon too. So 
certainly the crowd that was on hand was ready to burst and and you know had a good time especially with the fact that they won but again it wasn't maybe that same sort of experience that they had against chicago against st louis and against edmonton and so you know then you know going into game four uh pittsburgh made sure apparently mario they were staying at the saint paul hotel and he said his bed was too soft or something like that and so i know the team doctors from the Penguins, they got some lumber and they put it under his mattress or whatever whatever steps they needed to take. He was ready for game four. And then I'm going to let you in on – if, if you've read the book, you've probably run across this. To me, the sort of the devil in the details or the, the thing that most people don't know about the North Stars that year. Um, you got to realize going into game four, there was the potential that the North Stars could have won the Stanley Cup in game five at Pittsburgh. Now, since the team had been in Russia, the wives and girlfriends had not traveled with the players. When the cup is going to be on the line, all of a sudden, a lot of them want to be there. And so there were certain players, probably the coaching staff, too, that are like, no, 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 let's not get carried away here. I mean, you know, let's win the cup and we'll worry about the celebration later. But like I said, there were some wives and girlfriends that really wanted to be there and they were upset that the the team wasn't, you know, taking the steps to to make that happen. And I don't know all of what's happened. I've gotten this, you know, many players on one side say that this happened. I've got players on the other side that say they can't believe that that was an impact. But there definitely was some sort of argument the day of game four between John Casey, the goalie, and his wife, Brenda. And whatever went on, John Casey came to the rink that day for the morning skate and he had his three kids with him. And they, at that point, I think were all under eight years old or something. And I remember Jim Johnson was one of the defensemen. He's like, he couldn't believe it because, you know, you bring your kids on an off day, you know, or you bring them down after the game, but bringing your kids to the morning skate was a no, no. I mean, you just don't, you know, do that. And he asked, and apparently there had been some sort of argument between the two of them. And John didn't have any place else to go for child care or something. I don't know. Whatever it was. I mean, they they straightened things out. And, and John and Brenda are still married today. So obviously things are good between the two of them. But the, you know, the, the, the point to underscore with this is, is in game four, the North Stars came out and Pittsburgh torched John Casey for three goals in the first three minutes. And really the North Stars were never in the series again after that. That's very interesting stuff. And again, we love completism on this show. So, so that's where you know, if you're a huge, if you're a huge fan of of the North Stars back in the day, that this particular season, you remember it. Even if you're not, right? This is like this is almost sort of a a, a template, frankly, for how to do sort of like magic season stuff. I mean, we see many sort of narratives and 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 whatnot, and sort of uh, you know, in I'm gonna call it novel form, but in in sort of like rudimentary form. But this. But I, the thing I love about your book here is that that not only do you sort of go into those level of details and and it's almost um, uh, I want to call it, how would I call it not encyclopedic but it's sort of it's a it, it literally kind of goes in in a um, uh, in a time uh, honed fashion right where mm-hmm. I mean it's almost like you're you're reading the newspapers and seeing the articles kind of as they sort of play out and stuff and and little nuances like that right kind of. Uh, get lost when you're not sort of uh, uh, looking at things in a more detailed fashion like you do. 
Well, that was never reported at the time. And to my knowledge, other than this book, I don't think it's ever been reported anywhere. Um, this and, is why we love these conversations. <laughs> well, and, and you know, in fairness, uh, you know, I, I, like I said, I had many sources, many players tell me about that this happened. So I'm confident that there's something to it. Uh, John Casey, for he, he didn't really have uh, – he didn't enjoy dealing with the media that much as a player. Um, for whatever reason, I reached out to him multiple times. I could not get him to interview specifically for this book. So, you know, I don't have him have his take on it. Um, but like I said, I guess I'm, I'm confident enough to believe that that something happened there. And, you know, it's, it's, it's basically, I guess it's, it's just, it's, it's unfortunate. I mean, I, and I don't think you can, you know, you, you can't put everything on John Casey. I mean, you know, yes, towards the tail end of that series against Pittsburgh, they did not get very good goaltending. I mean, his save percentage was not very good when they brought Brian Hayward in. His save percentage wasn't any better. Uh, at that point, the power play had gone cold. Um, so there were a lot of things kind of working against them, not the least of which is, you know, Mario Lemieux at that point, uh, you know, he had a look in his eyes that he was on a mission and, and you know, what he proved not only in that finals, but again, the following year winning the cup back to back proved why he's one of the best players in the history of the game. So can you, uh, as a coda to this, can you describe uh, what you learned about the final game which ultimately was game six the on may 25th right. of 20, 1991 right which was you know they minnesota had lost the that uh, re, re, uh return match so they were down three to two and this yep. was a crucial game obviously we had to uh, you know do or die and um it was probably the worst uh performance in the entire playoffs that the stars had experienced losing eight to nothing to uh to pittsburgh at home um and it's uh the uh the infamy of this game is, I think, is probably one of, if not the sort of worst pivotal right. games in in the finals history. Right. There's, I mean, without a doubt, you could say that this was the worst performance when the cup is on the line, when you have to to either win or the other team is going to raise it. Uh, this was the worst game in the history of the league. And you know, that's what's one of the things that's so heartbreaking about this. Um, you know, here's this team that, you know, had pro during much of the regular season probably had no business even thinking about being in the Stanley Cup finals. And yet the, they proved that they were good enough to do what they had to do to get there. And now, you know, at, at this point, it's looking like it's going to be Pittsburgh. It would have been a tall task for them to not only win, but then go back to Pittsburgh again and win game seven. Um, but they don't even get the they don't even get a, a a consolation prize out of this because you know you get beat eight to nothing. Um, I mean it was so bad they 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 took John Casey out at one point they put Brian Hayward in and then it got so bad they took Brian Hayward back out and put John Casey back in. I mean you know it, it was just it was a nightmare and uh, you know that's the sentiment of all the players too you know they just wanted it to be over they wanted to find a hole that they could crawl into and 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 uh, you know not have to deal with it and and imagine you know for the fans too i mean you know there's uh, you know 16 15,800 fans or whatever it was that they had in the building and you know they wanted to have some sort of release they wanted to you know put some sort of cap on the season and they didn't even get a goal to cheer for so, um, you know, and, and, and I, I guess I got to interject this too. 
uh, probably a small side note, but uh, one of the guys that I worked with at the Pioneer Press chose that Saturday of all to uh, to get married. So basically our entire sports staff was either at Met Center covering the Stanley Cup finals or at his wedding. And I basically was forced to, I needed to work on the desk at the Pioneer Press that day to help get the paper out. I mean, there was just really no way around it. That was my future. I felt like I needed to be loyal to the Pioneer Press. My, you know, tenure with the North Stars was coming to an end at some point there shortly after, no matter what. So uh, I, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but at least I didn't have to be a part of it. <laughs> So Kevin, you buried the lead. It was your, it was your, your not being there uh, was responsible for the team losing so badly and ending the series, huh? Well, except for the fact that they had already lost Game Five, and and you know, like I said, the magic at that point had kind of uh, you know vanished. But uh, it's you know, it's it's an incredible run, and you know, the thing that I you know kind of makes this a story to me, or one of the reasons why. I mean, I've had this idea for the book rattling around in the back of my mind since 1991. Um, but if you look at the major league sports in the United States, the NFL, Major League Baseball, the NBA and the NHL, I mean, you don't really get very many teams, maybe other than I mean, it happens some in basketball, happens quite a bit in hockey where you would get a team that would make the postseason with a losing record. Rarely happens in the NFL, uh, happened only a few times in, in Major League Baseball, and none of those teams went on to have any success. Same thing in the NBA. Um, you know, the the bottom line is, is there has never been a team that had this bad of a regular season and went on to play for a championship in the modern era. You can the 1938 Chicago Blackhawks had a worse regular season and they won the cup, but they only had to win seven games to do it. And it was a different game back then. In the modern era, there's never been a team like this. And there will never be a team like this ever again either with the changes in the NHL. You know, it takes it's it's going to be rare for a team with a losing record to, you know, to wind up making the postseason anymore. And and like I said, then they would have to go on and and, you know, make it all the way to the finals. And I just, you know, Mike Badano is on the record. A lot of other people are, too, saying you'll just you'll never see this again. What what do you think the um, the immediate and lasting and then the, and further lasting legacy of this season was? I mean, I. Number one, we talked about at the outset, right, that there was already a shakiness to this franchise and lots of things behind the scenes. Do you think that some of this kind of delayed the inevitable or do you think it may be possibly hastened the inevitable given the collapse after such a dramatic and fun run? Well, see, that's the other thing that's sort of interesting here. If the North Stars had won the Stanley Cup that year, they'd have never left Minnesota. There's no way Norm Green would have been able to move that team to Dallas two years later if they were a Stanley Cup champion. Uh, but the fact that they lost and the way that they lost, and later in that that season about which we're talking, he was really pushing for a lot of season ticket sales. And so they came up with a deal where if you bought two season tickets, you got a third one for free. So that really goosed season tickets for the 91-92 season. But then that deal expired after that. So in 92, 93, all of a sudden the attendance started to come back down again, which gave him a little bit of an excuse to start looking around at that point. You know, he's trying to find maybe a different arena, whether it's in the Twin Cities or somewhere else across the country to go play. 
Uh, and then on top of that, there was also some uh, sexual harassment uh, accusations that came out from some of the employees at MedCenter about Norm Green himself. And that really embarrassed him and especially his wife to the point where, uh, you know, all of that contributed to the fact that they wound up by March of 93, they announced they were moving to Dallas. So in the aftermath of all of that, right, I mean, uh, can you describe from your personal experiences, right, and you're moving on to your, your career and stuff, uh, what it was like to lose the Minnesota North Stars franchise a couple of years after this season? I mean, you know, I draw a comparison to Brooklyn and the Dodgers, you know, when they had to move from, you know, when they when Walter O'Malley moved them from Brooklyn to Los Angeles. Um, you know, I, 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 that's, that's probably, uh, going some to, to make that analogy, but for people who love hockey and, and, uh, are in Minnesota, I think it's, I think it's fair. I mean, there's still an awful lot of people that are old enough to remember those North stars days. And, you know, there was, there was something about that franchise. Yes. Some of it's looking back with rose colored glasses, but the Met center was a fantastic place to, to watch a game. Um, you know, there was a, a bit of a closeness, you know, like I said, these guys were not that different from the average individual. And I really, quite a few of them over the years were from Minnesota. I mean, Neil Broughton is, you know, Minnesota born and bred. And I mean, he, he is Minnesota hockey, um, you know, and, and so you had that sort of attachment. And I think you still see that today. I mean, the, the Minnesota wild exist because the North stars left that allowed you to get the XL center in St. Paul. And, and to this day, now the, the wild are wearing sort of an alternate Jersey. That's an, kind of an homage to the North stars. And that's one of their most popular uh, items, um, you know, but to me, that's kind of what it was like. It was like, you know, it was, it was a poor man's version of where you got your heart ripped out and your team moved away. And, you know, I, I've had this argument with a lot of people too. I can't think of anybody in Minnesota pro sports history who is more loathed, who is more hated than Norm Green to this day. And that's because he took the team away. I always ask people around this team uh, their opinions about this question. And I think maybe this is a great way to sort of, um, you know, capstone uh, this this conversation. It's been great. I, I, uh, I guess the question there is, the legacy of this franchise, um, and it, maybe in particular, in your case, this particular season uh, being one of the hallmarks of it, where do you think the legacy of the North Stars does and or should live? Because uniquely, there are kind of three places where these memories should possibly officially live and maybe all three and maybe there's one that you think in your mind the sharks clearly because this is a team that mm -hmm. kind of split and forked its way into um uh, a portion of its soul and obviously this is before this yep. season we talked about clearly yep. the dallas stars where the team was moved and and you know we can argue whether there's a lot of sort of nostalgia and or remembrances but that's where the the history books kind of put it or is it with right. the minnesota wild right which essentially brought professional hockey in the NHL back to this state we talked about of hockey that, uh, frankly, more than deserves it. So right. where do you stand on all that? Well, uh, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book. I mean, these guys are largely orphaned. 
because the Dallas Stars, the people in Dallas, they don't care what happened in Minnesota. I mean, some of them know who Neil Broughton is. I would wager most of them don't know who, who Bill's Goldsworthy was or Bill Masterton. Uh, you know, the, the Minnesota history just really doesn't matter to them. It's not something that they, you know, place a priority on. And, you know, conversely, the Wild, you know, the Wild don't want to spend too much time pining for the days of the North Stars either because they have a different identity. I mean, you know, the only connection there is, is that the fact that the North Stars left allowed the Wild to ultimately come in. But, you know, they don't want to be celebrating the North Stars all the time. Uh, so you have this sort of vacuum where, you know, I felt there was this really cool story to tell. And, you know, I, 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 we won't probably have time to go into any of it. But, I, you know, I want people to realize, too, that the, the second half of the book is maybe as important as the first half because, for every guy who played on the team that year, including the coaches and the people I worked with in the front office, you know, most of them participated in this book. And the second half is largely, where are they now? And I've always been intrigued by this idea. You know, what is it like in your life when, you know, you're young? I mean, if you're a pro hockey player, you're, say, 25 years old or something like that. And you get a chance to play for the Stanley Cup or it could be in any other you know, mode of life, a different pro sport, or even in your own life, you know, you get the opportunity to do, to achieve some goal that you've thought of that was is the most important thing. And you get so close, you've almost got your hand on it, and then it doesn't happen. What is it like to live the rest of your life with that? You know, how do you do that? What is the perspective that you put then on that experience? And I draw parallels to my own life that way, because, again, at this time, I wanted to be a sports writer. I was figuring, you know what, I'm going to go cover the New York Yankees someday. I'm going to work for Newsday, whatever. That was going to be my goal. Well, I never achieved that. You know, I wound up, I took a job here in St. Cloud, Minnesota. There's a Division One hockey program I covered for a long time, and I'm proud of the work that I did there. But I wound up getting married. I got a couple of kids. And, you know, even at that, the, you know, the newspaper industry has totally swirled the toilet. I mean, I wound up leaving the newspaper industry here not 10 years ago. And so, you know, I kind of feel like, you know, I didn't really achieve maybe what I wanted to either. But at this stage of my life, I'm going to be 55 years old here shortly. I'm able to look back and I can feel proud of what I did and the effort that I gave. And, you know, you kind of got to find a way to live with it and move on. And, you know, to me, that's sort of the title of Mirage of Destiny, too. I mean, you know, as that season wore on and it started to look like this team was Cinderella and was going to do it, um, you know, that turned out to be a mirage. And, you know, what then? You know, what what, what happens next? Where, where do you go from that in your life? And I guess that's what I've tried to portray in the book. I think that's great. And, and it, it speaks to you know, journalism and sports and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I, I, I love the fact that it's a personal, um, you know, parallel, I guess, uh, which, you know, we, we've, as we've dealt in, in previous conversations in this, this show, I mean, a lot of it does sort of harken back in some way, shape or form to one's, at least we've seen a, a pattern. I'm not saying it's exactly right. that, but you know, one's, a, 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 a personal journeys, especially in, in, if you're a male and, and a certain age and, and the time that sports kind of, you know, becomes a part of your, of your reality and, and your cognizance sure. and all that kind of stuff. And in your case, obviously it was, it actually had some functional parts to it because you were sort of part of it too. I, I guess the, 
the real uh, question in there for you is, is do you see any other sort of stories similar to this, either from your personal experience or not, that maybe also could use a little burnishing and or remembrance like this one? That's a good question. I guess I haven't really stopped to think about that because this has kind of been my plan. And really, the only reason that the book exists is because of the pandemic. If the pandemic hadn't come along and given me basically that time at home and also all these players and coaches, the people that I reached out to, at the same time, they're sitting you know, wherever they are and they couldn't get out and really do anything either. So, you know, a lot of the interviews and, and you know, sort of the, the the work for the book kind of, you know, came about as a result of the pandemic. Um, you know, so since then, that's that's kind of been what I've been working on is, you know, getting this one out. I'm sure there are other stories out there. I guess I don't have any that are right off the top of my head. Uh, but, you know, that's the things that we've been talking about now for for the last little while here. I mean, that's that's to me why I felt like this deserves a book. I mean, it you know, it's I, I wanted there to be some place where, you know, 50 years from now, people might hear, you know, geez, there was this team, the North Stars that came out of nowhere and they made it to the Stanley Cup finals. And then two years later, the team is gone from Minnesota. You know what happened with that? And now they're going to be able to pick up this book and see. And and it's also a little bit of a nod to you know the players and coaches that I worked with then. I mean, you know, I was just a college kid. I mean, I was intimidated. I mean, you know, these guys are big names or whatever. And I'm just, you know, trying to, you know, not do something that made me look bad or whatever. Um, you know, but to to have the conversations that I've had with them, uh, you know, since then, uh, you know, it, it kind of picks up, you know, some of the interaction, you know, that I have with them is, is similar to the interaction that we had in the dressing room, you know, 33 years ago. So that's kind of neat, but it's also neat to see where these guys are at and what's happened in their lives. Some of them, you know, Mike Madonna, everybody would love to be Mike Madonna. I mean, he's in the Hall of Fame. He won the Stanley Cup and made millions of dollars. And now he's happily married with a big family. Uh, you know, there's other guys that, you know, maybe didn't have that level of success. I mean, and, and a lot of these guys are working real jobs still, too, to this day. It's not like they were able to retire because they played in the NHL. Uh, you know, and there's some real health and, and star stories here, too. I mean, you know, Brian Propp is an example. I mean, he had a, a stroke a few years ago, lost all the movement on one side of his body. And, you know, he's come back from that, went through a divorce and learned to sign his name with his left hand. I mean, uh, you know, Bob Ganey is probably the one that I feel the worst about. I mean, here's a guy who's a rock star in Montreal. I mean, all across Canada, everybody loves him. Uh, you know, he's a, a classic example of a, a great Canadian player. Uh, he won the Stanley Cup with the Stars in, as their GM in Dallas. Um, but, uh, you know, another thing that happened during the season, his wife at the time developed brain cancer. And it was a few years later that she ultimately succumbed to that. And they had several children. Well, their youngest daughter, in when, you know, at that point he was in Dallas, uh, really had a difficult time with that. And she got into some you know, drug addiction and, and acting out, uh, you know, getting in trouble uh, legally and things like that. Uh, later, you know, she did get her life straightened around. And one of the things that was a key to that, she started working on what they call these tall ships on the ocean, which is like the Nina, the Pinta, the Santa Maria, you know, the ones with the big sails. And so she would go out across the Atlantic and, and wherever on these big ships. Well, I believe it was 2008 or maybe somewhere around there. 
she was on one of these out in the Atlantic off Newfoundland and she got swept overboard and was never found. And so, you know, think of the heartbreak that, that Bob Ganey has experienced in his life. I mean, he's, you know, had tremendous success, but he loses his wife to, to brain cancer. He loses his daughter in this way where you never got to say goodbye and, and there's never, there's no closure, you know? Um, it's just interesting, you know, some of the people that have had such tremendous success, but also some real things to deal with. All right. Our thanks to Kevin and, uh, must get this book. It's uh, it's tremendous. It's a deep dive. Uh, if you are a, an old Minnesota North stars fan, you're a current Minnesota wild fan. Uh, you, uh, an NHL hockey fan. Hell, if you just want, uh, sort of the, uh, the rubric of how to, how to mem- memorialize a, a team, uh, in a, in a, in a memorable season, no matter what the sport, this book will, uh, do you right. And then some, it is called Mirage of Destiny, the story of the 1990-91 Minnesota North Stars. And yes, it gets into all the detail. It's got great pictures. It's got great, uh, headlines in there it's got some uh, call outs from various uh, articles and newspapers and magazines of the time uh and uh, it's just a, a great stroll down memory lane and it is a substantial work uh and i highly encourage you to get it it is published by north star press and uh, you can find it wherever good books are found uh including your local bookstore uh just uh, go down the street there and uh, tell them that you want this book if they don't have it tell them to order it but, of course, the most convenient way is to go to our website at GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. Search up this episode number 337 with Kevin, and you will find a couple of convenient links to it. And uh, you will get it probably as uh, fast as humanly possible. Now, if you're listening to us on the uh, uh, February 19th when we're dropping this episode, uh, it is available tomorrow as, as of on the 20th. Uh, but uh, if you go to the link, you'll just uh, it'll be a pre-order and it'll be coming to you the next day. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, who knows the difference? Now, if you're listening to us on the 20th or beyond of February, well, it's available now. So what are you waiting for? Either way, get the book. You'll be glad you did. Uh, you can also follow Kevin's uh, journey for this book and all the other stuff he's involved in at his website at KevinAllensbach.com. That's K-E-V-I-N, Kevin Allensbach, A-L-L-E-N-S-P-A-C-H, KevinAllensbach.com. Now, again, if you're listening on the 19th, tomorrow night, you can meet and greet Kevin at Tom Reed's Hockey City Pub. Yes, Tom Reed, the uh, uh, former uh, North Star player and, and current color commentator uh, for the Minnesota Wild Games. It's right down there in uh, downtown uh, St. Paul on 7th Street, just a few blocks away from the Excel Center. And uh, I'm not sure exactly what time, but uh, the launch party for this book will be on the 20th, Tuesday, February 20th at Tom Reed's Hockey City Pub. So uh, get yourself a copy of the book there. Get it signed. Get it. Uh, uh, take a picture with Kevin. Uh, hell, tell us. Tell him that we sent you and take a picture and then send it to me. To let me know that uh, more than a few people have heard this uh, as a promotional thing. And, and he knows that it was worth his time to be on this show. Uh, you can also meet and greet Kevin at the uh, Minnesota State Boys Hockey Tournament uh, at the Excel Center on March 8th and 9th. It's kind of like an expo and trade show as well. Uh, he'll be there signing copies of the book, so buy it there, sign it there, take a picture with him there, and send that to me as well. Uh, either way, uh, a fun time will be had by all. I won't be there, but uh, hopefully you will be. And uh, t- again, tell Kevin uh, that we sent you. Uh, of course, we appreciate all of your cards and letters, as they say. 
uh, for all of the episodes, whatever ones have uh, tickled your fancy. Uh, again, uh, goodseatsstillavailable.com is the locus for all of that stuff. Uh, follow us, uh, subscribe to us, rate and review us wherever you get podcasts. We appreciate that. That helps the algorithms find other people that might be interested in the show like you are, hopefully already. Uh, you can send us email if you'd like. We're at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, and you can follow us on various social media. Uh, let's see, on the uh, Twitter slash X thing, you'll find us at goodseatsstill. And uh, at places like uh, Instagram and Threads and Facebook, etc., you'll find us at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, our thanks, of course, to the great, the one, the only Jerry Payne. Thank you, kind sir, Jerry Payne. Audio excellence. And uh, we uh, uh, congratulate you, uh, uh, humble listener, uh, for your excellence in choosing us to, to listen to this week. And we hopefully uh, we gave you something uh, fun and interesting to uh, to enjoy. Uh, as always, uh, t- stay tuned till next week. Hopefully more fun and frivolity coming your way. Thank you for listening. And until next week, take care of yourselves.